According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Leviticus. We are here for day number 57 in our Through the Bible calendar, day 57, which means we're going to cover Leviticus 23 through 25, or at least half of chapter 25. We'll finish 25 uh, and then we'll finish Leviticus, actually, uh, on Sunday. So we have two more sessions after tonight to uh, to wrap up the details here from Leviticus. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight once again thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, and Father, calling upon your faithfulness to open our eyes and bless our time of study. Father, thank you for allowing us to return to our building tonight and uh, for the safe travels here and home and everything else you provide. Father, we just give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Glad you all survived that tremendous blizzard yesterday that swept through. All right. Leviticus 23. So we left off, uh, we dealt with a lot of the rules and the things we were dealing with in chapters 20, 21, and 22. That was last night. Moving on now, 23. This is a, a powerful chapter and I enjoy it very much because it takes a whole lot of things that we've studied separately and previously on different occasions and then puts it all together in a calendar. And so we have a month here that details the uh, the festivals that Israel has throughout the year. And so we get to work our way through that here tonight. In chapter 23, the Lord established his appointed times for holy convocations. Three of these holy feasts had previously been indicated as mandatory pilgrimages to the Lord. We talked about that in Exodus 23, 14 through 17. So we pick up here tonight with uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 23. The Lord spoke again to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. And it starts with the, and so that's the introduction, and then we're going to start off with the Sabbath, and we're going to work our way through the uh, the calendar. So right away, let me just say, this is Old Testament, this is for Israel, this is under Mosaic law. The church has nothing like it, okay? Nothing biblical like it. Uh, the uh, Roman church then went along and invented certain things and they crafted a, a calendar to work your way through Easter and Advent and all the other seasons there, but that was not a biblical uh, revelation from the Lord. That was a human invention uh, in the uh, unfolding of church history and in particular the uh, the traditions that then developed later on. All right. So this is the the proclaiming as holy convocations. These are the times when they were required to make their trips to Jerusalem to stand before the Lord, to stand uh, where where he dwells, where he caused his name to dwell. And so it didn't matter if you were from a tribe way to the north or you were from a tribe way off somewhere else uh, or if you were local uh, to Jerusalem, everybody was going to come and make their uh, appearance before the Lord on these holy convocations. All right, so we start with a Sabbath day. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all 
your dwellings. And so the first of the convocations is maybe the most mundane, maybe the most, uh, you know, because it happens every week, uh, but it, it does uh, reach the first of the list here. So um, the weekly Sabbath day. Now we've had this teaching before. It's not new to us. We understand it. Uh, it was taught when manna was provided in Exodus 16. Part of the wilderness wanderings, of course, required that they gathered every day. But on day six, they had to gather a double portion worth because there was not going to be the uh, the work was not going to be done on the seventh day. They were supposed to be resting on the seventh day. It was also a commandment number four in the Ten Commandments that was given in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember to keep the, uh, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall uh, labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle or your sojourner who stays. So we have the uh, the principle there. And I think I stressed it uh, in those uh, earlier chapters, the idea of doing no work. The idea is, is that it is it is a, a sacred day, not a secular day, not a profane day. That your work is your your livelihood, your your uh, the endeavors that you're doing for your family's provision, for your uh, career advancement, for your life savings, for your your bios life production. That's your work. And uh, sadly, what happened in between the Testaments, by the time we get to the New Testament, the time of Christ, they had so redefined the idea of work that it could be anything. It could be anything in terms of, you know, handing a, a alms to a beggar. And they had all of these, uh, because that's work, you know, uh, that if you, uh, if you reach out your hand and could you reach out your window to drop it or did he have to reach his hand through the window for you to drop it? Who's violating the work procedures there uh, in, uh, in that type of operation? Or the man that Jesus healed when he said, take up your pallet and go home. And, uh, and the, all the legalists were about, you can't carry your pallet, you're doing work on the Sabbath, see? And uh, failing to observe, of course, that the Lord of the Sabbath is the one that had commanded him to take his pallet and go home. In any event, I think it's useful if we, if we, in the back of our mind while we're reading through this about doing no work, that we realize we're talking about the professional employment work endeavors, okay? You know, uh, so doing no work means I'm setting this day aside, I'm not doing my professional career work endeavors, uh, but I might do something physical, right? I might lift a sheep out of a pit, or I might carry my pallet and go home, or I might, I might do something physical, as, and especially we talked about circumcising a baby boy on the eighth day, or, or other things that were to be done on the eighth day. That doesn't violate the work prohibition. Anything you're doing in the will of God does not violate the work provision. All right. Um, so, taught when manna was provided, uh, commandment number four in the Ten Commandments, restated when the tablets uh, were being engraved, uh, all of the detail there from the book of Exodus. All right, we move past the Sabbath and we move on to the appointed times. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So we begin with a Passover and unleavened bread. These came back to back because Passover was on the 14th and then for the eight days after that or the seven days after that you had the, um, the uh, Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So on the first of the month, on the 14th day of the month, that twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. 
On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So that really gives you a back-to-back Sabbath routine there, right? Because you got the Passover, which was a Sabbath, and you have the, the first day of the unleavened bread, which was also a Sabbath. Didn't matter what day of the week it fell on. Okay, uh, so the the Passover might be a Tuesday or it might be whatever, as long as it was Nisan fourteen. Okay, and then Nisan fifteen could be a Wednesday or whatever. The very next day didn't matter. It didn't have to fall on a Saturday. See, uh, they were automatically Sabbaths just by virtue of what they were. So uh, for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day it is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So you could end up with three or four Sabbaths in the process of this event if because on the, the Passover, day one, uh, day seven, and then maybe if a different day within that mix also happened to be a, a, a Saturday, then uh, you can end up with a, with a bonus Sabbath on that occasion. All right, so we have the subpoints here in uh, A, B, and C under main point three. This feast was the one that was established on the night Israel was redeemed out of Egypt. So in a sense, they get to reenact that every year. They get to have their, um, you know, their cosplay uh, reenactment of that because they're going to eat this meal standing up with their feet shod, dressed in readiness, uh, just like they did on that night that they departed out of Egypt. This was a required pilgrimage feast as stipulated in Exodus 23:15. All right, you shall appear before the Lord, none of you shall appear before me empty-handed. The shadow of this feast was given substance when Christ our Passover lamb was sacrificed. I'm going to walk us through some of these tonight and I'm going to be honest with some of the later ones that um that I understand the theology but I'm also cautious with some of the predictions that get made along with that. And so we're going to be, I'm going to make that clear tonight and freely admit that uh, maybe I don't have all the answers on these things, but I'm going to tell you what the theology is about and then I'm going to deny, I'm going to deny before you here and everyone else on YouTube that uh, some of the things people insist on uh, have to be the case. Okay, so stay tuned. (laughs) That's a teaser for uh, three more feasts from now. All right. Uh, just to remind you, Colossians 2.17, um, those that were uh, functioning in the Old Testament, when it says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. The idea that somebody in the New Testament, uh, in the church age, somebody in the body of Christ would appoint themselves as, as your umpire, your referee, or your judge, uh, as to what you eat, what you drink, uh, the days that you observe or whatever. That's garbage. All that's Old Testament stuff. We're not under any of it. As Gentiles, we never were anyway. Why would we be under it in the body of Christ? It's insane. Why would you submit to that? Tell those umpires to take a hike and find a different league to, to referee. Then it goes on to say in verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay? The substance belongs to Christ. We belong to Christ. We're the substance. We're in Christ. We function in the church age in the realms of substance, not in the realms of shadow. So we have shadow and we have substance. You might also think of it as prophecy and fulfillment. You might also think of it as typology, and or the, the type and the anti-type, okay? When you understand how typology works. So this being said, what is Passover? The, the shadow is Passover. What is the substance? The substance is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. As we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 
uh, Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. And so this is probably the easiest, maybe, out of all of the feasts that we're looking at because it's so explicit, it's so spelled out. And it's also so obvious with our hindsight looking back when we read Exodus 12 and we see the events of the, of the first Passover, when we see the death of the lamb, when we see the blood applied to the doorposts and the lintel, when we see the death passing over and not uh, and, and the mercy of God not striking dead the firstborn. There's just so much in that the events of that night that that we understand were fulfilled or were pictures of what was fulfilled with Christ on the cross. And this becomes maybe one of the easiest of all of the uh, typologies to understand. Then we have the explicit statement of the New Testament that says, yes, Christ is the Passover. He is our Passover. Okay? And, uh, and as if it wasn't blatant enough, we have the events of 33 AD whereby on Nisan 10, when all the Jews were selecting their Passover lamb for the sacrifice, Jesus was walking into, or was not walking, was riding into Jerusalem, humble on a colt. That was his presentation to the Jewish people on Nisan 10, on, on Monday of that crucifixion week. And then on Nisan 14, on Friday, he was being crucified while all the the priests in the in the temple were crucifying the um, Passover lambs. All right, so this is the obvious one. We get past Passover, and we get to the feast of uh, and the unleavened bread. We get to the feast of first fruits, Leviticus twenty three verses nine through fourteen. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. Okay? And of course, we have the hymn bringing in the sheaves and all the excitement of what goes with this. Okay. Now, by the way, this was, um, there was a hint of this that was given earlier, a principle that was given in Exodus 23 19 talking about, yes, you shall bring in the choice first fruits of the soil into the house of the Lord your God. Uh, so this was given previously related to the fact that the Lord comes first. Okay, That's the principle. Our gifts to God come first. So we have this feast here called the feast fruits. Uh, so when you reap its harvest, you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So it's a wave offering, waving the sheaf, and the Lord can see it, everybody can see it, and there you have it. On the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Good thing we're experts now on the burnt offering. We've gone through that. We're not going to hit that again. It's grain offering then. Oh, we're experts on that too, okay? Its grain offering then shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its drink offering a fourth of a hin of wine. Okay, And until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Alright, so there's the instructions and the specific details there. Now, what is the typology? What is the shadow? Where is the fulfillment of this? Okay, The um, shadow of this feast was given substance when Christ led forth a sample resurrection to present to God the Father. And this is uh, spoken of, I think, most clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. 20 
But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who were asleep. But he wasn't raised by himself. You might recall that when Jesus was raised, there was, in a sense, a firstfruits resurrection that was raised with him, related to us in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, that when Christ was crucified, the tombs were opened. Remember, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And so this is frequently thought of as the first fruits resurrection. All right, so there we have two of the feasts that we're dealing with. Next we have the Feast of Pentecost, verses 15 through 22. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering. There shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So you have seven Sabbaths, that's 49 days. Then you have day 50. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour baked with leaven. Notice, with leaven, that's interesting, as first fruits to the Lord. Along with the bread you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect and a bowl of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. By the way, these are national offerings, okay? It's not every single Jewish person has to bring seven of these. And I mean, that would be just, you know, millions of people and billions of animals. No, we're talking about a national offering that's being conducted here by their high priest by their national priesthood in their in their uh, annual celebrations. Okay. Also, a male goat for a sin offering, two male lambs, one year old for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest then shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priest on the same day. You shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is to be a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. All right, so that's 15 through 21. There's another note here about reaping the harvest and not reaping to the very corners of your field. I think I talked about that the other night when we were talking about leaving those corners and leaving the gleanings available for the needy and the alien and the provision for that. All right. So this feast, the Feast of Pentecost, this feast was also called the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of their, of their labors. It's also called the Feast of Weeks, um, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. It is described in Exodus 34.22. Also, uh, we'll have another reference to this coming up in the book of Numbers. 22:28 gets referenced again in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16:10. This was the second of the required pilgrimages, uh, pilgrimage feasts mentioned back in Exodus 23:16 and Deuteronomy 16:16. 16, 16. Remember, there's three all together. This is the second. All right, now, somewhat controversial. I'm just going to list it as it is. The shadow of this feast was given substance when the church was formed on the first Pentecost after the crucifixion. Okay? Acts 2, chapter 1, we know it was 
Pentecost when the church began. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Keep in mind, this is the first day of Pentecost after the Passover in which Jesus Christ was crucified. I think sometimes we talk about the day of Pentecost as if there was only one, uh, the birthday of the church, and and that 33 AD was a a once in a lifetime or once in a existence thing. No, they had Pentecost every year. They've they've been having Pentecost all along, just like they've been having Passover along. It just so happens on this particular Pentecost the church was birthed. Okay, The Holy Spirit descended, the church was birthed, and they started, the Jewish people started hearing their own uh, languages from wherever they were coming throughout the empire. They were starting to hear the things of the Lord communicated to them in those languages. Now, some things here we got to kind of. I admit it's awkward, and I don't. I don't have a complete comfort level with it, okay? Because the church is a mystery. The church is not revealed in the Old Testament. The church is not Israel. The church has nothing to do with Israel, in a sense, because Israel was made up of Jews, and they were not Gentiles. The church is neither Jew nor Gentile, but uh, but both Jew and Gentile baptized into one body. So, how can the day of Pentecost, which starts the church age, be a fulfillment of a typology of a, of a Jewish feast. Okay? And, and so there's still elements here that I, I'm really not happy with it and I want to improve upon it, if I may, uh, you know, between now and, and uh, the next time I teach this uh, in 2042. All right. Shadows are not clearly understood until substance is embodied. That's, a, that's always a principle. Okay? So the, did they have an awareness of the coming church as they were uh, observing Pentecost every single year? Of course not. They had no awareness of the church at all. The church was a total mystery until the church was unveiled. Shadow typology does not violate the mystery doctrine of the church. It remained a mystery until it was revealed. The substance of this shadow occurs contemporaneously with the revelation of the mystery doctrine of the church. And so in a sense, I think it's useful for us to stop thinking of the church in terms of Pentecost, but start thinking in terms of Israel. Because yes, it was our birthday, but what else was it? It was also the notice for Israel that they were headed for national destruction. They were hearing the word of God spoken to them in Gentile languages. And it was a warning that the destruction of their city was on the way. And I think that would also help us related to perhaps some of the other things that the Feast of, uh, of uh, Pentecost represents. All right, it gets worse. Let's look at the Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying in the seventh month. All right, so now we've had the spring feasts earlier in the year, in March, April, May, okay, for uh, Passover weeks and, and Pentecost. Now we have the Feast of Trumpets. This comes in the fall, in the seventh month. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a, a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Short and sweet. This is the first reference to the Feast of Trumpets in Scripture, and the instructions for the required sacrifices don't come until later. We'll get those in Numbers 29. 
the seventh month is marked by an extraordinary Sabbath day proclaimed by the blowing of trumpets. Okay? And the trumpet blowers weren't breaking the Sabbath. <laughs> I imagine it was work to blow those trumpets. They had to do something physical in blowing those trumpets. But they're obeying the Lord as they blow those trumpets. All right. The, um, this is particularly significant and separate from the silver trumpets that are going to be noted below. So pay attention. Silver trumpets now will mark the beginning of each month and the sacrifices of the Holy Convocation. So we'll get into that when we get into Numbers chapter 1. We, and we're going to find out that not only is the Sabbath day, the seventh day uh, special, but also each new month, each new moon is going to be commemorated with these silver trumpets. This day, the Feast of Trumpets, is the modern Rosh Hashanah, or New Year's Day. It has been celebrated as such since the Babylonian exile. Some would even say maybe even earlier than that. That they have always had a fall New Year's Day. When they added the Nisan, the spring New Year's Day, at their exodus, that they actually kept two in place. Okay, And I'll let them scholars argue that back and forth. Um, probably not going to solve it to anyone's satisfaction, but that's the way it is. So they end up with two New Year's Day. One that's uh, ceremonial, religious, one that's centered on their on their uh, temple and their sacrifices and their, their religious calendar. But then the secular calendar, if you will, uh, you can think of that as this one here that marks the beginning of the civil and the fiscal year in the fall. It was also supposedly the date of Adam's creation. It was also supposedly, um, they had other events uh, from the past that were connected with it as well. Now, the substance of this shadow, I'm not going to give you here. I'm going to hold off, <laughs> okay, because I don't like it. But I'm going to hold off on it and I give it to you in the, in the later, uh, we're going to talk about the, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths. We're going to give you the substance for all the false sacrifices together. Is that fair? Too bad. That's what we're going to do. Verses 26 through 32. The Day of Atonement. Of course, we went through this in, in detail in chapter 16, at least as far as the procedures for the high priest and all the activities of that day. But here it's, it's plugged into the calendar with everything else that's going on to the calendar here in Leviticus 23. Verses 26 through 32. So on exactly the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. And again, it's a Sabbath day, no matter what day of the week it falls upon. Uh, I haven't mentioned yet, these months are lunar months. Okay, So the first day of the month, could be any day of the week and and it's going to be the the calendar is going to float the months are going to be flexible through the year uh, and then they're going to have to have leap days and, and a leap month to uh, to uh, to keep the solar uh, the lunar calendar in sync with the solar calendar uh, as far as that goes and then they they track the the Passover based upon the the first you know full moon after the the spring equinox in uh, in that complicated stuff. Just give me a Google calendar on my phone and we'll take it from there. All right, so um, we have the instructions here. Let me just get down through that. It is a Sabbath, complete rest to you. You shall humble your souls. 
on the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening you shall keep your Sabbath. All right, it's the holiest day of the year. It is the high holy day. It is the day of atonement. The extensive ritual of this day, the 10th of Tishri, has already been described. That was back in chapter 16. Instructions are given here to show where the day fits within the festal calendar and to issue another solemn warning concerning the Sabbath principle of this day. The substance of this shadow will be discussed below together with the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths. I'm holding off on all three of the fall feasts for the, the shadow fulfillments. All right. Point eight then is the Feast of Booths, verses 33 through 44. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying on the 15th of this seventh month, the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. So they're all hitting on the seventh month, day one, day 10, and day 15. But day 15 starts a seven-day feast. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind, For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. All right, so this feast had previously been revealed as the feast of the ingathering. It was the third and final required pilgrimage feast uh, in Exodus 23:16 as well as what will come up in Deuteronomy 16:16. 16, 16. Interestingly enough, day of atonement, you don't have to be there. But you do have to be there, you know, uh 5 days later or uh I'm losing track. On the 15th of the month. All right, so you don't have to be there on the day of atonement, that's on the 10th. And you don't have to be there on the feast of trumpets, that's the first. You can stay home. You can just be getting ready to make that trip. But it's the the 15th for the Feast of Booths, you have to be there. The final ingathering of crops in the fall was called the end of the year or the end of the agricultural year in Exodus 23.16. So yeah, we've got a, a civil year, uh, a ceremonial year, and an agricultural year. And they're all different. Whereas Passover commemorated the deliverance from Egypt, Booths commemorated the wilderness wanderings and the preparation for the promised land. And so they're going to replicate the, the wilderness wanderings. They're going to live in these little booths for the week. They're going to um, pitch their little pup tents and, and uh, live in that uh, simple way. All right. The substance of this shadow will be discussed below together with the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. So I'm going to give all three in one fell swoop. And then we're going to get to chapters 24 and 25. So this is a fast night. We've got to, we've got to hurry through it. We have yet to see the, uh, the actual booths here. There we go. On the first, down to verse 40 through 43. You shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Thus you shall celebrate it as a feast for seven days and yeah, in the seventh month. You live in these little booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right, so that's the bottom of the chapter. Now let's talk about the typology, okay? Trumpets and atonement and booths. The shadow substance typology of the seventh month feast. Okay, and and 
like I say, I'm going to, I'm going to take some issue. Even as I teach it, I'm going to say, this is how I accept it. This is how I understand it. But I still have some remaining questions. I still have some remaining um, problems. I still have some remaining disputes okay, that I will uh, have, to, uh, have to spell out here. All right, remember back to the first month now, Nisan, those feasts, Passover, first fruits, Pentecost. They were all given substance through events related to the first advent of Jesus Christ. Okay? The crucifixion was the, was the substance of the, of the Passover shadow. The resurrection was the uh, substance of the, of the uh, first fruits uh, shadow. The uh, establishment of the church was the substance of the Pentecost, of the, the wave offering shadow. So we have everything in the, in the spring feasts seems to have its uh, shadow fulfillment in the first advent ministry of Jesus Christ. Now we get to the seventh month feast, trumpets, day of atonement, and booths. They will all be given substance through events related to the second advent of Jesus Christ. Okay, So these are looking forward. In other words, we've had the shadows ever since the rituals were first given, but we haven't seen the fulfillment. We haven't seen the substance yet of those shadows. And effectively, what do we have still in our eschatology? What do we have still future? Well, we've got the rapture of the church. We have the, um, and this is where we've got to be careful, okay? The Feast of Trumpets will be given substance by the rapture of the church. Theologically, I think that's consistent. Theologically, I can see how it fits when I'm diagramming it, making the charts and all the rest. However, I've got some caveats here and I've got some puzzles that I still have not resolved to my own satisfaction. Okay, Similar to with Pentecost. I'm still not totally hunky-dory with, um, this is the doctrine of hunky-dory, uh, the idea of the church being a mystery, so how can a Jewish feast have its substance fulfillment in something unrelated to it? Okay, but like I say, the, uh, the, the day of Pentecost is related to Israel in the sense that it's their notice that they've been revoked, their stewardship has been revoked, that they are, they've currently been set aside, that they've been uh, sidelined for at least a period of time, such as uh, allowing for the, uh, the Father to work out His plan for the church. So maybe something similar here with the Feast of Trumpets. Obviously, anytime you're looking at a rapture text, um, whether it's 1 Corinthians or it's 1 Thessalonians, there are trumpets that are mentioned. Okay, And so when we don't all sleep, but we will all um, be transformed, we will all be changed. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. This is the mystery doctrine of the rapture. It applies to the church. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Okay, so there's a trumpet. And I can see the connection that people make with the feast of trumpets and the rapture event. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Likewise in 1 Thessalonians, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. All right, so the two primary rapture passages that we have in the New Testament both make reference to trumpets and it is a future event that has not yet been fulfilled that might be thought of as a substance fulfillment of the shadow rituals of the Feast of Trumpets. However, my problems with it of course 
Again, the church is a mystery. The rapture is a mystery. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how a, a ritual of the Old Testament to Israel would have a substance fulfillment with respect to something that concerns the church. And so I would do something similar with this that I did with Pentecost. That not only is the rapture the removal of the church, but think about it from Israel's perspective. The, ra- the rapture event is also the resumption of God's plan, of God's stewardship with respect to Israel. So that might be the better way to associate the substance fulfillments of these feasts. That the Feast of Trumpets has its fulfillment when, after the, the long period, after the long parentheses, if you will, that Israel again resumes their duties as the covenant nation and bears their testimony to the Gentile nations of this earth. And actually I'm liking that. I'm liking that as a concept. So it's technically not the church, it's rapture, but it's the resumption of Israel's stewardship duties. Just like uh, the, the Feast of Pentecost is not a shadow of the birthday of the church, it's actually a shadow of the termination or the suspension of Israel's stewardship duties. And so it's just a, it's a, picture, a picture of the break. And you can think of the break in between the, the spring sacrifices and the fall sacrifices. You can think of that break as a foreshadowing of the, of the church age, you know, the parentheses that is the church age. But from Israel's standpoint, not from the church's standpoint. The Day of Atonement will be given substance by the national restoration of Israel and the establishment of the new covenant. Okay? And, and this is awkward too because so many people find the Day of Atonement with its fulfillment in the crucifixion. Wait a minute, that's what Passover had its fulfillment in. The, the Day of Atonement has its fulfillment because yes, while the blood was shed on Calvary, the blood was not applied to, to Israel as a nation in the first century. It's still waiting for the establishment of the new covenant. So the Day of Atonement will be given substance by the national restoration of Israel and the establishment of the new covenant, which is of course still future. All Israel will be saved. That's not today. That didn't happen in the 33 AD. That's in the future at Second Advent. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. For That hasn't happened for Israel yet. Yes, my sins are forgiven. I'm a church-age believer priest. But Israel's national sins, they're still dead in those sins until he removes those, until he uh, uh, applies the blood of the covenant to the nation. That's second advent. That's not yet. Same thing with Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. Israel didn't do that in the first advent. Did Israel turn from transgression? No, they crucified him. They crucified their Messiah. All right. Of course, Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. How do you end up with a pre-tribulational new covenant is just crazy to me. It's after the tribulation, not before. Ezekiel 20, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. Takes the second advent, it takes the Jesus Christ seated on the throne. 
I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. He has a global regathering of all the Jewish people, and he brings them into, not to Israel right away, he actually brings them into the wilderness for judgment, just like he did with the Exodus. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. How in the world do people have a pre-tribulational new covenant that's already in effect today when it requires the tribulation, it requires the global regathering of all the Jewish people, and it requires him entering into this wilderness judgment of Israel? to place them under the bond of the covenant. This is where the blood gets applied. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. They're going to go to hell. They're not going to enter into the promised land. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. See, he's making all of his promises are true. He promised to regather all of Israel, so he does. He gathers every Jewish person from the four corners of the earth, whether they're saved or not. Because he promised to regather all the Jews. So he gathers them all, the believers and unbelievers alike. And he enters into judgment with them here in the wilderness. And he purges the rebels. And will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. So he's faithful to every promise. The believers then get to march up the holy highway, singing the hymns and, and uh, entering into the millennial kingdom. Okay, we're marching to Zion, we're marching to Zion. More hymns tonight that we keep encountering. All right, the Feast of Booths. Whoops. The Feast of Booths will be given substance in the millennial kingdom, dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ over the Gentile kingdoms of the earth. And this is portrayed in Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19. The substance fulfillment of this happens when Jesus Christ is on the throne and then every year, every year, Gentile kings will be required to come to Jerusalem and to worship the king. They will uh, be required to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. They will be required to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In fact, imagine this when, uh, you know, because it's going to be the kings of the earth are going to have to live in those little booths. When they come to Jerusalem, when they come for the seven days to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. It'll be whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So if uh, you know the President of the United States misses it, America gets no rain for the following year. I substituted that for Egypt there in verse 18. If the... If, the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do, do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. See, the millennium is not fun and games. It's not uh, rainbows and unicorns. It's not, it, it, is a, it is a rod of iron. Okay? He rules over sinners. Uh, the Father says, go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. All right. It's also why the Lord would not go up to Jerusalem with great fanfare. His brothers were urging him to do this in John chapter 7. The feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. 
And I expect that he did go up previous years to this, but this was the one right before the crucifixion, and I think he was struggling. I think in his faith he was praying intensely to the Father, and the idea of going up to this particular Feast of Booths shortly before his, his crucifixion on the cross, he said, no, you guys go do that. He said, and then he, he went up later, as it were, in secret. All right, so there's the activities there. Anyway, like I say, I want to do more work on these. Um, I understand, and and I accept. I think it's valid. I think I think it is theologically valid that the uh, spring feasts all seem to have first advent fulfillments or first advent substance. It it seems then as a natural corollary that the fall feasts would then have a substance connected with a second advent. Just a couple of things. Remember when it was first being portrayed, it was not clear that there was going to be a period of time in between first advent and second advent. It was possible that he could have come just the one time and Israel would have accepted their king and and, uh, and we could have had just a single advent instead of the two advents. So I think there's additional study that needs to go into that kind of uh, recognition. And then uh, beyond that, um, I don't know, I'm just not comfortable taking the church connecting it to these feasts. That's, that's my biggest hang-up. And so I'll, I'll work through that. And uh, you can pray for me. <laughs> I'll work through that and uh, be able to teach this better next time. For those of you that plan to stick around until 2042. All right. Yeah. Rapture pending. None of us are going to be here. All right. Well, let's get to chapters 24 and half of 25 then. The Lord follows his explanations of the great and important days with a reminder that each and every day has individual responsibility. So yeah, how do you, uh, how do you follow up a chapter like chapter 23? I mean, jeepers. Uh, we have a whole calendar now set before us with a vast swath of prophetic truth. And well, he does it like this. He just changes subjects and moves on to something practical, something daily. Um, and the daily duties that they have to do here. The um, reminder that each uh, and every day has individual responsibilities. And for the first nine verses, they're spelled out. The priests were responsible for the daily trimming of the lamp. The priests were responsible for the weekly provision of the bread. And so you got verses one through four dealing with the lamp. And you've got verses uh, five through nine dealing with the, uh, the bread, the 12 cakes that are baked and brought in to set on that tape, that golden table. And you would start to think, ho-hum, here we go. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I think it's useful. I like it. I like the idea, you know, um, we can get excited about the rapture. We can get excited about heaven and second heaven. We get excited about all the great vast things of eschatology. But at the same time, let's not forget Today, here and now, let's let's uh, walk today in in the in the will of God and studying to show ourselves approved and and all the rest. So while we're waiting for glory, we have daily duties as unto the Lord. I think that's a a good reminder, bringing the text back to uh, to earth a little bit. All right. At this time, Moses' study was interrupted with a report of a blasphemer in the camp. You know, just when he's, he's busy writing the text and. And uh, and then he gets uh, you know six text messages, two emails, and a phone call, and uh, Moses has to go deal with this before he can uh, continue with uh, all the other narrative he's trying to get squeezed into the book of Leviticus. All right, 
So the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. So uh, the Lord said to Moses, bring the one who was cursed outside the camp. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Let all the congregation stone him. So you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So we have the interruption here and the details. This name Shelomith or Shelomith means peaceful, similar to the, the, the woman's name in Song of Solomon. Um, this is a single mother in the tribe of Dan with an uncontrollable son and the blasphemy here and the cursing. By the way, they wouldn't always use Adonai as a substitute for Yahweh. Sometimes they would use Hashem. They would use the name. And still to this day, Jewish people will do that when because um, they don't want to pronounce the name Yahweh. The Jews placed him under guard until Moses could rule on the matter. The Lord sentences the man to death and Israel executes the sentence. We also have uh, an opportunity for Bible class in this as long as uh, we're on the subject of putting uh, evildoers to death. We have uh, verses 15 through 22 walking through the issues here. All right. Yeah, life for life, eye for eye, killing an animal, you have to make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you, it shall be for the stranger as well as for the native, for I am the Lord your God. All right. There we go. Chapter 25. Now we're only going to tackle half of the chapter this hour. The other half we'll tackle uh, on Sunday. The Lord resumes his instruction regarding special days to describe now special years. So in chapter 23 we had the calendar for any given year and uh, the things they do in the spring, the things they do in the, in the, uh, the fall, month one and month seven basically. Um, then now we have these particular years because there's going to be a sabbatic year. It's going to be the year of Jubilee. So we start with a Sabbath year. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. All of you shall have a Sabbath, the, the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself and your male and female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you. Even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. So it's a whole year off. It's a, it's a year of rest for the, the, the land itself, for the workers, the farmers, the animals, the slaves, everybody. Every seventh year. 
they didn't do so, so well with this. In fact, we learn later in Israel's history that part of the, the reason for the captivity that they have in Babylon was to give the land the Sabbath rest that it never got while uh, they failed to observe these, uh, these requirements. So the land was to be worked for six years, but the seventh year was to give the land a Sabbath, spelled out here also stipulated in Exodus 23. Any food grown on its own was free for anyone to partake of. So there it is. You know, it's almost like uh, when I was in Uganda, it was like there was just food everywhere. It grew on trees. It grew everywhere. You just walk along and no one could starve to death in Uganda because there's just food everywhere. It's crazy. In this year, all debts were canceled. Now we'll get to that when we get to Deuteronomy 15. Uh, but the uh, some of our bankruptcy laws and some of our different traditions and things related. It's curious to me how they, they have a seven-year formula, and I wonder, did they derive that based on these texts, or what gave them the, uh, the period of seven years there for that? Anyway, in the Sabbath year, all debts were canceled, and all Hebrew slaves were freed. We already saw uh, material connected to that in Exodus 21. There will be more teaching on that coming up in Deuteronomy 15. This year was a special time for special instruction. And that's going to get spelled out in Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 through 13. At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, the place which He will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. The children who have not known will hear and, and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So by doing this every seven years you're guaranteed that every young person is going to hear it at least once, possibly twice before uh, you know before they're married and they leave home at 14. Okay, <laughs> Or you know whatever age, they, they left home pretty early in those days. But by having this every seven years, then all the families can come together and receive this instruction. All right, so backing up to chapter 25. You also count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. So again, it's that cycle, seven times seven, 49 years, and then that 50th year. Seven times seven years so that you have the time of seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year. And so this becomes unique, this day of atonement in that jubilee year. And uh, just launches another glorious year here for them. This is the year of Jubilee from verse 8 down to verse 22 here of this chapter. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release. Now they just had a release in, uh, in, uh, in year 49 because year 49 was a Sabbath year. And so that should have cleared the debts, that should have had the, the, the slaves, the Jewish slaves set free, not the Gentiles, but the Jewish slaves set free, and everything that took place in year 49 as per a normal Sabbath year would have happened. But now they get back-to-back blessings, double portion blessing. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property. 
each of you shall return to his family. There's actually a, a property re, uh, revert, a reversion that takes place in this jubilee year. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. It is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. And you understand how much faith this requires for the Jewish people to obey this. Right? Because they, you know, they've got a six year span in which from, from year 43 to 48 that they're planting and they're reaping and they're, they're gathering, but they realize they're going to have a two year, they're going to have a double year Sabbath where they're not working those fields, where they're not bringing in those harvests, where they're not, um, where they're not doing that. Trusting that God's providing for them, see? And so really in a lot of ways, doesn't this kind of seem to you anyway, it seems to me that a lot of this is kind of reminiscent of Joseph in Egypt where they had the seven years of plenty and where they were able to uh, save up and prepare for seven years of famine. Uh, just they're doing this on a, on a seven year cycle, on a, sep, on a septad cycle and then doubling it up every 50 years. Anyway, I find that interesting. Um... So, this is year 49 and year 50 in their calendar. The Hebrew word, the, uh, the yobel, uh, speaks to about, if it's an animal, it's a ram. Okay? If it's, you're, not, you're not trumpeting a ram, you're trumpeting a ram's horn, obviously. Uh, so it refers to the ram, it refers to the ram's horn, it refers to a trumpet, or it refers to the jubilee year. A year of liberty. Uh, freedom. All Hebrew slaves are to be set free in this year of Jubilee. In the next generation there will be a question by the daughters of Zelophehad on how to apply this principle. We'll get to that when we get to uh, Numbers 27 because they're correct. They're looking at and they're observing the fact that these tribes are going to have their land grants reestablished and all of the tribal divisions and all the clan divisions are going to get rebooted and reset in that way. And these daughters of Zelophehad have a problem because they don't have any brothers. And Moses is going to have a stipulation for them related to inheritance and how, how that's going to happen. So stay tuned, we'll get to that in uh, coming up here in the book of Numbers. There is actually one recorded incidence of this happening, Jeremiah 34, 8. And, uh, and they actually <laughs> um, they 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 do this, and then they betray it. Shortly after they released the captives, uh, the Jews changed their mind and took their slaves back in, uh, in verse 11. Afterward, they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free, brought them into subjection for male servants and for female servants. I mean, how terrible is that? And they get judged for it. Jeremiah has a message for them in verses 15 through 17. Isaiah uses this, uh, this phrase, this doror, one time in, in Isaiah 61.1. This release, this freedom. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Okay, so it's the, that first one there, the liberty is the doror. 
to proclaim liberty to captives, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of our God. This is the passage Jesus was teaching on when he was in the the, uh, synagogue on the Sabbath in in Nazareth and they handed him the Isaiah scroll and he read uh, verse 1 and he read a third of verse 2 and then he stopped right there and rolled up the scroll in a very awkward spot because he couldn't get to the words of vengeance, the day of vengeance, that was second advent. So he stopped with proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord and he rolled up the scroll and handed it back and started to proclaim the fulfillment of first advent expectations. All right. And of course we have this. All right. Real quickly, I'm at the bottom of the hour already. Boy, time flies. The year of Jubilee marked a return to God the Father's designated inheritance for each tribe and each family, as is described here. Uh, each of you shall return to his own property, each of you shall return to his own family. Verses 13 through 17. Also some warnings there about, you know, don't be crafty if you, you know, you're trying to alter your dealings because you know Jubilee is coming up. They do have a prorated schedule here. In proportion to the extent of years, you shall increase its price. Fewness of years, you can diminish its price. Don't use the the religious calendar to try to game the system and and manipulate things in your in your buying and selling. Finally, verses eighteen through twenty-two. God the Father graciously provided for them ahead of time in anticipation of three years' provision. So. Um, as he spells this out in verses 18 through 22, you shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgment so as to carry them out that you may live securely in the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely in it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth a crop for three years. I mean, a bumper crop, an absolute abundance and uh, and you know it shouldn't shock them when it happens. They should just realize, oh yeah, God's being faithful. We better store this up because we're going to have to eat for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when the crop comes in. So they're not going to work on year forty-nine. They're not going to work on four, year fifty, and then on year fifty-one, while they're planting and getting, you know, while they're 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 sowing. It's going to be a while before that crop comes in. God's way ahead of him. He's, he's providing. All right, well, we're going to leave the rest of chapter 25 for our next session. That comes up on day 58. So, um, all right. Thank you, Lord. We made it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these uh, classes. And once again, uh, even though we're, we're off to the races and galloping, uh, Father, it's, uh, it's all grace. It's all from you. We thank you for these studies, and I pray in particular for the the uh, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Booths, Feast Day of Atonement, these things, and the Second Advent uh, substance realities, Father. Um, I admit, I've got more study to do on these realms, and uh, better uh, descriptions, Father, a better way to ex- to understand it myself, and a better way to explain it to my congregation, Father. I want to relate these feasts to Israel because these are Israel's feasts and uh, and not uh, not relate them to the church's birthday or the church's rapture, but keep all of the fulfillment connected to Israel and their suspension of stewardship and their resumption of stewardship. 
as, uh, as the case may be. So Father, it's in your hands. Uh, we just continue to thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.